friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Cigar Social Podcast. My name is Matt. As always, thank you for joining. This is episode 21. Our guest today doesn't need any fancy introduction at all. Uh, let's get right to it, folks. I'm very excited to announce uh, and introduce the president and CEO of Tatawahe Cigars, the one and only Pete Johnson. Thanks for spending time today, Pete. Nah, what's happening, man? Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. No, no, thank you. Uh, before we dive into Pete's experiences of uh, Tatuaje, some of the other projects, let's talk about what we're smoking and what we're drinking right now. Pete, what are you smoking over there? I'm actually smoking, hopefully, the same thing you are. I'm smoking the Cabai One Britannica Extra that uh, is made nice. in Nicaragua using a Connecticut Ecuador uh, wrapper with Nicaraguan binders and fillers. Very happy about this cigar. Um, it's got to be one of my favorite morning cigars, but I'll tell you, here it is in the evening, and I'm enjoying it just as much. So, Five and three-eighths by 48. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that the size that became very popular with the, no, the, yeah, the Bella you're, Ancre Reserve? You're, you're dead on. Yeah, you're uh, dead on. It's a five and three-eighths by 40, 48. It's the same size as the Bella Ancre. Uh, and the Belonc Reserva. It's in in Cuba. The, the, the molds actually come from Cuba. In Cuba, the molds are actually called Britannica Extra, and that's why I just decided to call it the same size as the mold. Okay. Okay. This is a medium to full body cigar, right? And it's also, if I correct me if I'm wrong, it's more medium. Yeah. Yeah, it's more medium. This cigar. It, it just has a really big amount of flavor on it. It's not, you don't, like, when you start getting strength levels that are high, and but you have a balance to it, you start getting maybe a little uh, upset in the stomach. Yeah. With, in regards to this cigar, this cigar actually really is full body, full flavor, but medium strength. It's not, it's not over the, over the top, so you won't get a little woozy from it. It will just give you a nice uh, enjoyment, you know, enjoying quality, and you you won't feel like uh, you need to eat some food after it either. And correct me if I'm wrong. It's named after the Cuban city that is home to uh, some of the world's most talented cigars maker, uh, cigar makers. Yeah, Kamai One Cuba. Um, it's funny. The, the the only reason why I use the name is because I read an article many years ago in Cigar Aficionado. And there was a very famous tobacco uh, man that um, had was they were interviewing, and he talked about people he met in Cuba and the cities that, that he found had the most talented tobacco people. A lot of times were outside of Havana, uh, especially the tobacco people. You know, Havana is known for because of its you know history and, of course, because it's got, kind of got a star power to it. But there's a lot of talent in the center of the island and somewhere off in the distance it's you know six hours outside of Havana and Cabai One is that one of those places same thing with Remedios um, you know the, if, you think, if you think about the Garcia family they're from Las Villas or Via Clara region and that whole region right there is very knowledgeable when it comes to tobacco wow uh, this cigar came in a thousand thousand boxes uh, released worldwide so these are pretty limited yeah, it actually ended up being a little short because um, we originally did uh, 
500 with the backup of 500 coming in, but um, there was a little bit of miscommunication with the factory, and they they technically never made the second 500. So, oh. so the the second 500 started rolling in slowly uh, over the last few months, and we just got a uh, a small inventory in. I think just last week. So we're we're flush on them again. But uh, to be honest. I love this cigar so much, and we're actually trimming our portfolio down by a considerable amount this year. What we okay. think is considerable because we never want to get rid of anything. I think I'll probably add this size into the Cabo One line, but I have to wait a little bit because I'm using those particular molds to make a special production cigar this year, and I want to make sure that I don't intrude on that. Oh, okay. Um... Off the jump, this is outstanding. So, uh, if I missed anything, I, I feel like we covered this. What are you, are you drinking? Anything over there? And where where is over there? Yeah, I'm in Miami. Um, this is like my courtyard patio, and uh, it's it's been cold, but all of a sudden, and I'm wearing a sweat jacket, but all of a sudden it got really steamy and hot and sticky tonight. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go with it and stick with wearing the uh, the sweat jacket. Um, but I'm drinking, I don't know if you ever heard of a, a brand called Rare Character. Rare Character is a whiskey company that started buying barrels uh, several years ago uh, from different distilleries. And what they do is, is eventually go directly to groups um, or companies and offer them barrels. Oh, at, you okay. know, a little bit of a markup, obviously. And what they do, what they actually do is they... I mean, this is the worst possible way to describe what they do, but what they do essentially is they come to a guy like me and they say, here's a bunch of barrel samples uh, that we can get you, that we have access to. A lot of these barrels we have on hand already. We'll do everything from start to finish. If you like a particular barrel, we'll slap your label on it. We'll actually send it off to a retailer or a reseller so they can actually sell it for you. And it actually makes our lives, especially for the, you know, we do the Saints and Sinners Club. It's really easy for us to like do almost like a one-stop shopping. And that way the money's collected by a company that is like legitimately set up to, you know, sell whiskey online. And mm. it, they, it's a really good company, and, and the guy who owns it has been collecting and, and buying barrels for years. And I'll tell you, the, the juice is good, like super good. He gets them from a lot of different distilleries. Um, you could name one. He probably has barrels from, from every one of them. That's awesome. But, Ryan, uh, cool company, cool of, concept. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, What's that? what – it reminds me of what, like, an MGP – does where they they'll distill they'll barrel it up and then you can get it you can buy if you're a, a startup company or you just want to buy by the barrel you know you can go there and they they'll just sell you whatever they have access to or what they've made yeah i mean the reality is that we could go and do that but the difference with rare character is that they they literally do everything for you um and actually i think one of their whiskeys somewhere got like whiskey of the year on on some some whiskey review place um really good stuff 
the guy has a great palate and a great nose and um, I actually have seven or eight different sample bottles here at the house uh, testing but this is actually a barrel that was uh, done by my buddy uh, Life of Lux on Instagram uh, Joel Wilbur is his name if you you want to follow someone who, who really collects whiskey and cigars um, and wine uh, Life of Lux at Life of Lux on Instagram. Okay, all right. I am, I did a, a dram of the Copper Craft Straight Bourbon, and it's a, a whiskey from Michigan, and I just had that kind of a sip. Usually I do a lot of whiskey. Sometimes I, I'm too drunk to walk out of the shed, but right now I'm also doing something a little different tonight, and that is that I had asked uh, my friends at the Chi-Town crew on Dojo um, about this cigar, and they all agreed that coffee is a like you mentioned perfect morning cigar but a pairing with coffee would be a good go-to so also doing that i did a french press it's a little off camera but i did a french press of local coffee um right before the show drinking it black just like it's intended um and nice it is i like that by the way <laughs> as it's intended thank you <laughs> uh it is a great pair I, i'm gonna probably find myself drinking more coffee tonight with this than than the whiskey um just a just a great pair um yeah i'll be honest you got me craving coffee now this is the dark roast by two brothers um here in the chicago area okay yeah um flagship yeah they have a, a brewery too the roundhouse in aurora and then they also have their their coffee beanery or uh whatever they call it. Um, but yeah, what do you, you call find it? it. I like I the name Beanery. <laughs> it, it makes sense. I think it makes sense to me. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. It completely makes sense to me, too. Uh, so we have a lot of diehard fans of Tatuaje on the dojo and in the crew. And it seems like you have almost established like uh, this culture that surrounds great cigars, and people are just drawn to it, almost like a, like a cult following if you would I, i've noticed oh man I, I really i really hate the word cult um, not not a cult definitely following. not what i'm going for <laughs> not what i'm going for um yeah i mean there there are people out there that have you know cult followings but uh i just i don't know most of the guys that uh that are part of our club really have just become friends of the company and friends of the family and you know, I've been on trips to Nicaragua with these guys, so I don't know. I, I, I just feel like a cult is someone that wants you to stay in and drink the Kool Aid. The type of group that wants you to experience everything and try everything. If you come back to us, it's the bonus. But uh, yeah, the cult, the cult kind of locks you up and tells you you can't go anywhere. Yeah, wear matching shoes. Um, and we'll tell you that every other product sucks. <laughs> it's true. Starting uh, from your days playing gigs up and down a Sunset Strip, how did you get into cigars, and what inspired you yeah. to get into the cigar industry? Well, okay, so back in the uh, early 90s, I started smoking cigars while I was on stage. There was one day that I saw, like, a TV clip of, like, some... I don't know what it was. It was, like, a celebrity party on, like, one of these news... TV shows like, you know, Entertainment Tonight or something like that, Mary Hart or whatever, <laughs> whoever it was back then. And uh, 
they were they were at a charity function and all these guys were in tuxedos smoking cigars. I go, well, that looks kind of fun. I don't know about wearing a tuxedo, but I I like the fact that people are enjoying themselves. And I, I was never a cigarette smoker. I tried a cigarette when I was younger, didn't like it. Um, and I really didn't have many vices. I was in love with certain things, but you know, music was my focus. And then I found cigars. And honestly, cigars are actually what led me to wine because the cigar store I worked at that I eventually got a job at was next to a French restaurant. So I would go next door to have lunch and they would teach me about French wine. So that's really what got me into the wine part. But when I was, when I was playing music on the Sunset Strip, I got a cheap cigar, liked it, decided I want to go a little bit heavier or, you know, more expensive. Bought more of a premium cigar back then, which was $2.50, which was a big deal back then. And uh, I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start smoking. And then I decided to start smoking when I was playing. Not an easy thing to do, by the way. No, um, Especially trying to keep it in your mouth while you're, while you're playing guitar or bass guitar. So... I kind of got into it, went down the rabbit hole, found what I didn't like and what I did like and started collecting a little bit. And eventually um, the store that I frequented actually asked me to, to work for them. And that's where, that was the place next to the French restaurant. Is that where you were uh, mixing uh, pipe tobacco by hand? Yeah, so my job when they hired me, because they had, you know, it was right in the beginning of the boom and business was kind of cranking for stores. Yeah. They had they had a big issue with, you know, customers, you know, pipe tobacco customers that were coming in saying, hey, give me a bag of 1Q or give me a bag of, you know, Ancient Mariner. They had a lot of crazy names too. Uh, 1Q happened to be a factory blend, which, you know, you could buy. And we used that as a base for a lot of different aromatic blends, but that's a different story altogether. But... Every time people would come in, they're like, yeah, give me a bag of Ancient Mariner. And next thing you know, like they're running out and they still got to run the register and work the humidor, but there was no one to make the pipe tobacco. So they're like, okay, time to get dirty. And they would, they would literally say, okay, there was no such thing as, you know, gloves, you know, like <laughs> you, you go to any store now and you get rubber gloves. Right. Yeah. But back then the only place you saw rubber gloves was in a doctor's office. Um, so yeah, my hands would get really dirty. And the cool thing was I was kind of used to it because I grew up running printing presses. Like when I was younger, I ran printing presses. So I worked multiple years printing things and using blanket wash and getting ink all over my hands and, and yep. destroying my fingers, you know, coated with this junk every day. And then eventually they're like mix the pipe tobacco i was like okay took me a, like you know 20 minutes to get out all that pipe tobacco out, out from under my fingernails and the color out of my skin but i enjoyed it because i was following recipes but then we started doing our own recipes like hey let's try something different like let's try to copy another blend that's already out there or let's try to do our own version of that blend so it was a lot of fun uh, but yeah, dirty work. And eventually, though, I think it was fairly quick. I continued mixing pipe tobacco, 
but it was about six months into working at that store. I'm fairly good with numbers, like quickly remembering numbers. And uh, the owner was like, uh, how much is that Henry Clay? And I'm like, $1.50. How much is that punch? And I'm like, a dollar. You know, like back back then, everything was like 95 cents, a dollar fifteen, a dollar twenty. You, when you were talking expensive, you were going towards Avos and Ashtons and PGs and stuff like that. But uh, for like the everyday guy, he was coming in buying like a between a dollar fifty and three fifty per cigar, and it was just easy to remember. So the humidor started small eventually became like a humidor full of, I don't know, 300 facings or something like that, maybe more. And I knew every price. Wow. Like, I can tell you today that the price of a Henry Clay Brava back then was $1.15 in that store. I can tell you at one point in time, uh, Punch Rothschilds and Hoyo Rothschilds were $1.50. The problem was... Within six months of me working there, the boom started really to hit, and then every cigar company started raising their prices. And when I tell you raising their prices, it was every six months. Not once a year, once every few years. Every six months, there was a five to 10% increase. So by the time I finished wow. you know, working at that store and moving on to the next store, Henry Clay's were close to like four something. It got up, you know, like shit got really, really crazy. Um, and then that's where that's where the, the end of the boom happened, where people got greedy. People started using bad tobacco because they couldn't get enough tobacco. Yep. People started making cigars with banana leaves. And new cigar smokers were all excited to get into this culture and they'd walk into a store and buy a cigar that tasted like shit. But I can tell you, the good companies survived, and the bad companies that made shitty product, they're obviously not here anymore. So, yeah, that, that was a long way to get to your, your answer, but I can't remember what the question is now. So, no, actually, yeah, that's I, wanted, where I started blending I, pipe tobacco. <laughs> I wanted to follow up on your experiences, and uh, so thank you. But one experience that kind of blew my mind when I when I found out was, can you talk about how you ended up working uh, on tour with the Jonas Brothers? <laughs> Sorry, I just knocked the mic. Hopefully it didn't make too much of a sound. Um, yeah, so in 20, 20, 2009, I started working with this guy named Sean Johnson, no relation. Um, he was introduced uh, to me by my accountant because my accountant was the accountant to a lot of musicians. Like my accountant still to this day, you know, like he's a good friend and, and I've known him. We used to play poker together. It was like in the Bon Jovi Wanted Dead or Alive video. Like he's he's been around. Like he's one of those guys that, you know, he was uh, House of Pain's um, uh, you know, att not attorney, but uh, accountant, you know, a bunch of a bunch of different groups. And Casper um, happened to work as a road manager for one of his clients. And Bruce is his name. He called me, he says, hey, you know, our friend Casper 
is a cigar smoker and he's got tattoos and he's actually getting tattooed right next door to your office. He wants to come see you. And I was like, yeah, okay. So we met and Casper had been on tour with kind of a little bit of everybody. He did, you know, the warp tours and all those things back in the day. And he was also an assistant tour manager on the Jonas Brothers tours early on when Jonas like blew up the first time, right? So fast forward, we're already working together. 2012 comes, we decide to, I decide to start Atelier with my brother, Casey, uh, my buddy, Dan Welsh, who, who is the, the face of surrogates and the, you know, the brand owner of surrogates. And of course, um, Casper, Sean Johnson. And Sean gets a call and, and it's one of the guys from the Jonas Brothers and says, hey, we're going back on tour in South America and we want you to come with us to help us out. And he's like, now nah, I'm in the cigar business now. I'm really happy. And I'm just, you know, I'd rather not. And I, I kind of like tapped him on the shoulder. I said, wait, hold on for a second. See if they'll take two of us, but they don't have to pay us. Like, you know, I just want to travel. They don't have to pay us. I'll take care of everything. And so Casper pitched it to him and they bit. They're like, sure. So I went on tour for my 10 year anniversary in 2013. Uh, that's when it happened. As kind of like a vacation, but I, I ended up being a roadie. For, they don't like to call them roadies anymore. They're, they're techs, you know. Like, Gear but, techs, uh, yes. I became truly, I became like a, a gear tech, but I, I didn't know what I was doing. Like literally just tell me, Hey, go, go move this over there. And I was going to go for it. Right. I, hey, can you go get us a bottle of whiskey at that store in the middle of Monterey, uh, Mexico, where, you know, they didn't tell me that that's where people get killed, but I, I went out and got a bottle of whiskey for something. Um, so I ended up carrying their luggage. I didn't care. And even, even the kids who knew that I was in the cigar business and, and by that time, the company's 10 years old. They know about my brand because they're all cigar smokers. Okay. They, they started asking, like, why is he here? Like, why is, he, why is he here? I go, I'm on vacation. Like, if you need me to carry your luggage, I'll carry your luggage. So I ended up, that's what I did. And uh, I had a blast. And it was probably, it was one of those once in a lifetime experiences. And even to the last day, the security people were like, so what's your position with the band? I go, no, I'm on vacation. They're like, you were serious about that? I go, yeah. Like, that's why I'm, I'm here on vacation. But uh, I, I became very good friends with a few people um, on the crew and still still uh, one of my favorite times in my life, you know, because it just was fun and it was just an experience. I love, I love the journey and I love living different experiences. So if, if, Someone said, hey, you got an opportunity to go to, you know, the Far East uh, to climb a mountain. I'd probably, I'd probably do it. I'm scared shitless, but I'd probably do it. Um, sometimes I don't like to do the planning, but if someone says, hey, don't worry, the planning's already done. You're going to come with us? I'll be like, okay, let okay. me ask my wife. <laughs> you know, that's really, that's where, it, where it's led to now, though. Let me ask my wife first. 
in, uh, in, 20, in 2003, you were introduced to Jose Don Pepin Garcia. At that time, you described an idea of a cigar that you liked, and you asked him to, to make that cigar. From what I understand, on his first attempt, it wasn't really what you were looking for, but on his second attempt, at that point, you knew that was the, that was the guy who was going to make your cigars. Um, can you yeah, describe it, how it that wasn't developed? So much the first... Yeah, it wasn't so much the first attempt. The first attempt was actually through through the mail. Uh, they sent me a sample that they made for me, and I didn't like it. And my my friend Ben Gehrman, who was a sales rep for uh, Viazon Cigars, which was the owners of uh, Punch and Hoyo at one time, he uh, he he said, "Don't worry, we're going to come and meet with you and, and make you cigars uh, in front of you, so we can sit down and, and who, who come up with a blend for." Oh, so that the, was uh, Don Pepin? Ben Gehrman. He was a sales... Yeah, he, okay. No, this was Ben Gehrman. Uh, he was a sales rep for, for Viazon, but he had called me about this guy named Pepin, but he called it like he called him like Don Pepe, or he called him Pepe. He didn't call him Don. He just said his name's Pepin, or Pepe. Or, I can't even remember what he said, but it was... So I met I met Pepin. They came to the Grand Havana Room by that time, and that's where I was working, and... I met him, I set up a table for him to roll on, and he rolled me a couple sticks that I didn't like. Ultimately, we had a brief conversation about his history, where he came from, and I grabbed a couple old Cuban cigars that I knew were smoking really good, and I went back to him, I gave him one, I smoked one, and he, through translation, he says, you want this? I go, yeah, I want that. And uh, the next cigar he rolled was that. Like, he literally knew that blend so well from being in Cuba because he left Cuba in 2001 but didn't make it to the States until 2002. So he knew the blend, and with Nicaraguan tobaccos, with different tobaccos, but similar seed varietals, obviously. Uh, actually, they're all Cuban seed varietals. He was able to make me a cigar that was was truly, like, just something different, something that I had been looking for in the domestic market for years. And I went home that night. I was like, I'm going to make my brand with this guy after trying to do it in the mid nineties, not understanding what the concept was of like really how much work it would take. When I met him and he was able to listen to my ideas and, and put something together specifically for me, then I was like, I'm in, I'm fully in. And it's been a great experience because, I mean, shit, I was their first client. Before they made anybody else's cigars, they actually made Tatuaje first. That was the first cigar oh. that they ever produced in their factory. Before they're even their own brand, they had Tatuaje being made. Not wow. because I was in the front of the line, it's because that's, that's how it worked out. I was the one that took the chance on this family that no one knew about and uh yeah i i i was in the right place at the right time and you know honestly the relationship built over the years and ultimately i ended up marrying pepin's daughter um just purely by the chance of um we just became best friends and next thing you know we're we're just always around each other and it became just and the natural progression of our of our lives so it was a 
So I'm truly part of the family, but I was, I would say, I didn't make Papin, but I helped guide him to be who he's supposed to be, which is a Cuban cigar maker. Yeah. Even though he makes Nicaraguan cigars, his history for, you know, so many years, he started rolling cigars in Cuba at 11 years old. Uh, I think there was a lot of people around him when he first got in the United States trying to change his opinion on how to, you know, like what style of cigar to roll. There were a lot of people like, hey, make me an Opus X, make me a, make me a Padron. Okay, yeah, those are great cigars, but do you really want to copy George Padron and Carlito Fuente? No, because they're, they, those guys are who they are because of who they are. You don't, you don't come in and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make the best knockoff to Opus. No. Like, I've had conversations with people in stores where they're like, hey, sell me one of your cigars. And I'm like, well, what do you enjoy? And they're like, well, I'm an Opus X smoker. I'm like, I got nothing for you. <laughs> I'm not going to sell them a cigar because I know that it's not going to be an Opus X because that's yeah. not what I tried to make. Um so it's really important that uh, I think in Papine's journey, I, I might have been the guy, not in so many words, but I might have been the guy that said, just be who you are. Don't listen to the noise of this is what you're supposed to make for the U.S. market. Make what is you. And what is you is where you grew up. So that's what, for me, I was a big Cuban cigar fan, so I fell in love with that whole concept, and I was like, the only thing I wanted to copy was a Cuban cigar. I didn't want to copy anybody else that I knew in this industry. I didn't want to copy Lito Gomez. I didn't want to copy uh, George Padron. I didn't want to copy Carlito. Any of these people. I wanted, to, I wanted to knock off the Cubans and do it better than that. Ultimately, you know, side by side, I believe we do, but, you know, they're still the naysayers. I think long, I how, think there's about eighty percent of domestic cigars that blow away any Cuban cigar anyway. So, how long did it take to go from that first meeting with Pepin to get, actually getting a product on the shelf? <laughs> like three months. Wow. Yeah. Which I mean, I think that. that you know, I mean, the reality is, it's quick. It, it's yeah. quick, but the reality is, is when you have good clean tobacco and it's ready to be used you don't have to wait a long time to have a cigar ready you can actually put the cigar together you have to wait about 21 days to wick off excess moisture and then from there you can start smoking them what they do in the box with aging is really where they start changing but you don't need to let them sit for you know x amount of years the tobacco's ready you, you get a sense when you're making a cigar and you pick up a cigar off the bench and it's banging right off the bench and there's all the excess moisture and there's all the muted flavors, but you can still, it still pops through everything, then you know if it sits for a year, it's going to be great. And if it sits for two, it's going to be even better. It's like, for me, it's like a great bottle of, of wine. When you open up 
a brand new vintage of a great chateau, you're like, okay, this is really good, but I bet you it's going to be amazing in a few years when it kind of all comes together. Yeah. I, I always like to say, kind of like chateaus, you know, great chateaus and great wineries, they don't put crap in the bottle. You can't put crap in the cigar and expect it to not be crap later on. You have to start with good juice, you know? <laughs> It's, yeah. it's with anything. I mean, if you, if you put something in your ingredients when you're making a dish, a whatever, pasta, and it's something that's, like, rotten or something that just overpowering to the dish, you're going to end up ruining the dish. Um, but if you put a good balance of, you know, spices and herbs or whatever that you want to put in that dish, you're going to end up with a great result. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, speaking of great results, this thing is phenomenal. I'm about halfway, Thank maybe you. a little, little past halfway through. Um, uh, absolutely outstanding. I think the coffee recommendation nails it right on the head. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. The whiskey is a maybe a little overpowering, but I'm. I needed a glass of whiskey today, so. I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> uh, it's Friday, right? It is Friday. Right. Yeah. yeah. So how do you decide what size to release cigars in? Is it a taste factor or is it a financially based decision? No, it's just the moment. Okay. There's, there's no rhyme or reason. I really like this Britannica size and I don't do it that often. And we literally have like one mold set that we can use in the factory. So we really have to time based off of the other production of Belonks. We need to make sure that we have enough Belonks in stock before we start rolling something else because we need to time the, the mold set because we can't, we can't have two pairs rolling them. We have one pair. And uh, I don't know. I think last year it was just like, you know what? I think we have enough time to put together the Britannica in the Racine Atelier the Britannica in the Surrogates Big Ten and the Britannica in the Cabai One and kind of make those like celebration cigars. Part of the 10 year anniversaries for Atelier were Surrogates and and, uh, and Atelier. And then the Cabai One really, I just wanted to put it in the lineup um, because I thought Cabai One, you know, is to me, it's still one of my favorite blends it doesn't get as much play because of the Connecticut wrapper sometimes, but uh, it's weird. Connecticut wrappers are probably still one of the most smoked wrappers in the industry. But uh, sometimes people forget about, you know, certain brands. When I started, you know, upgrading the bands a little bit and make them a little bit, a little prettier instead yeah. of very simple, it did catch people's eye. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't do that as well, right? No. <laughs> I have that nice yeah. blur effect, but it's it's just really, I don't know. I, I I love the cigar. I love the blend. I think it's really subtle. It's got a sweetness to it. It's not overpowering. It's got big body, big yeah. flavor. You know, coats your mouth, but it doesn't punch you in the head. And it's not a uh, cigar that's going to take you an hour and a half. I mean, I feel like 
before this is over, I'm probably going to uh, light up a Fausto or, or something different. But uh, Well, I, um, I'm actually going to go back to back. You're going to go back to back. Nice. Yeah, because honestly, I, I had another cigar sitting here. And as soon as I lit this up, I go, that's where I want to end the night. Yep. Sometimes it's nice for me because I like, since this is more on that medium side, I like to kind of clean my palate with a lighter cigar at the end of the night. Sometimes on the occasion, if I'm with Dan, surrogates, uh, he'll pop out like a five pack of cracker crumbs and we're lighting up cracker crumbs as the last cigar. And then I wake up the next morning, you know, kind of chewing on my tongue. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A little off topic. So you're a bassist. And from what I heard, your old band, Hung Jury, which I believe had songs called Dark Country, Evil Way, and The Real Thing. Uh, (laughs) You believe or you know? (laughs) No, no, no. And I've heard it. And uh, what I, what I, I... with the bands that I grew up with, it reminded me of a cross between like L.A. Guns, Skid Row, and Ugly Kid Joe. Um, what was yeah, your? Well, yeah, yeah, I was just gonna go there. You, you were. I was beating you to the the answer, but um, so what you heard with those three songs was a progression of the band. On the, I think you probably heard them from a particular uh, EP that was put out a while back. Yes, Screaming, Not by screaming us, by in Blue. Screaming in Blue, yeah. But that's literally from, like, songs from our beginning all the way to our end. Okay. So Dark Country was at the end, and it's kind of more heavier and angrier. Real Thing was early on. Um, Evil Way was kind of in the, in the middle. So we went through, in, in a short three and a half or two and a half, no, three, yeah, three and a half years, we went through a lot of progressions. Um, shit, not even that. Let's see, three years. Sorry, we went through a lot of lot of changes because we all had heavier influences. But this is the the, the wrong thing you could ever do. When we first started our band, we were we were trying to go after what was hot at the moment instead of being ourselves. Yeah, and. We were trying to fit into that that niche of what was hot, and it worked because we played the whiskey, we played uh, the Roxy, we played a place called Gazari's, we played the Troubadour. You know, we won a contract with Budweiser, you know, to be sponsored by Budweiser, even though we drank uh, Miller Genuine Draft. <laughs> we we took the free beer, um, and they paid us, which was awesome. But um, yeah, we tried to fit into what was in and it worked but at the same time we'd be driving back and forth from practice listening to things like Pantera and uh, King Diamond and Guar and just heavier heavier music Mm -hmm. but we had so many different influences within the band that they all kind of stemmed together like I would say out of all of us maybe one of the guitar players and the singer were more on the lighter side of everything. I was a mixture of everything. I was super into Guns N' Roses, but I was also into Duran Duran because I was yeah. a bass player, and those are two great bass players, right? Obviously yeah. into Motley Crue, Skid Row, um, Pantera, Metallica, Megadeth, stuff like that. But then, you know, our drummer was like super into King Diamond 
and guar and like heavy shit. So he'd beat the, the and, and I think Jason, our guitar player, was kind of like a little bit all over the place. He would listen to anything that would put him in a weird mindset to write. Yeah. Um, so we, we gravitated heavier, but one thing that we always kept with us were harmonies. Like we were, we had a lot of melodies, we had a lot of harmonies, and so if we ever mixed into anything, we kind of, I always like to say we were kind of like a cross between Extreme and Alice in Chains towards the end. Because okay. we had the harmonies of both, but maybe a little bit more rock and roll instead of grunge that yeah. Alice in Chains had. We had more of that extreme kind of. Plus, I mean, if you, if you heard our last demo that no one's heard, actually, the music's just all over the place. Just completely all over the place. I thought that was when we were doing our best shit, but <laughs> we broke up. We broke up. Our singer came to our band meeting. We had a directive from our lawyers and our management. Our lawyers and our management, very good management, very good lawyers, um, managed and, you know, represented very famous bands. And they said, okay, over the next six months, you're not allowed to do this, this, and this. You're only allowed to play at, like, dive bars where you don't promote and no one knows that you're playing them at. And uh, if we want people to go, we'll invite record industry people to those shows, but do not promote that you're going to play these shows. Is this the same six and, months that, that you had to do a name change? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we did the name change to, uh, to kind of hide the identity of who we were. Um, so my, my tattoo artist actually, I don't even want to say it. I won't say it because it's not politically correct anymore. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a highly offensive name. And um, ultimately, we just went by ah. And uh, we, yeah, I won't say it. <laughs> we, we kind of played underground. And I think it was like, they, our management was like, okay, by this date, we are going to have you signed to, I think it was like June 18th or something like that. I, I don't know why June 18th sticks in my head, but. We're going to have you signed to one of these three labels. And I think it just put a lot of pressure on all of us. And we were like, holy shit, this is going to happen. I stopped, I stopped showering for like two weeks. You know, like, you know how people have superstitions? I like wore the same, the same T-shirt to every show and never washed it for like a month. Wow. It's, it smelled really bad. It smelled really bad. <laughs> and that, at the time, I, I had a beard. And I had really long hair. I wish I could show you a picture because I kind of looked maybe a little like Jesus or what Jesus might look like, I guess. Um, and our singer came to our band meeting one day. He goes, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to scream for a living. And he broke up the band. And we went back to the, the studio, just the four of us, and tried to do it without him, and it just felt uncomfortable. We're like, okay, we're done. And we all kind of went in separate directions. I ended up, uh, it was odd though, because my singer, our singer came back. We were still friends, obviously, even to this day, but shortly after he left the band, I think it was like six months later, he goes, I joined another band. I'm singing for this group. And I'm like, it sounds just like the shit we were doing. Why the fuck did you leave us? <laughs> And I, I, I kind of got pissed. 
um, but I ended up going into a band um, with uh, the drummer from Ozzy Osbourne, this guy named Randy Castillo, uh, who ultimately passed away. Uh, Randy was Ozzy's drummer for years. And then uh, the guitar player was this kid named John Lowry. And I knew him because his girlfriend worked with, with my girlfriend at the time. And uh, John was probably one of the most amazing guitar players I've ever played with. He he ultimately kind of became a kind of a dick uh, because I met him years later and I say, hey, how you been? And he he's like, who are you? And I'm like, oh, we played in a band together. <laughs> like, he goes, what band was that? And I told him the name. He goes, oh, that was a long time ago. Oh, good to see you. Have a good day. And I left. And a buddy of mine actually asked me, he goes, what happened? I go, yeah, he's kind of a dick. He like, played off like he didn't even know me. Uh, but it was uh, John. John ultimately changed his name to John Five, and he was Marilyn Manson's guitar Mar- player, yeah. and wow. now Rob Zombie. Yeah. No shit. Okay. Wow. But um, I will tell you that John likes to recycle music. Yeah. Because I, I found a song that Marilyn Manson recorded that sounded very similar to a song that I actually recorded with Sean. So, yeah, mm. a little recycling. Just a, uh, a change of the intonation a little bit. Just a, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, back to cigars. Uh, do you yeah. remember the cigar that really first triggered uh, your love for the leaf? Yeah, I mean, the first cigar that I ever was like, okay, that's the one I'm going to buy a box of, was made by Davidoff. And it was actually made um, in the Davidoff factory way back when, obviously, in the early 90s. And it was called Private Stock Number 11. And I don't know if they still make Private Stock, but Private Stock eventually became a brand where they built it specifically. They, like, they just started rolling it. But when they originally made them, they were actually Davidoff seconds. They were legitimately Davidoff seconds that didn't make the color grade or they didn't look as pretty and they would put them to the side and put them in this this box that only had the bottom and it had no lid and it had a piece of paper on the top and then cellophane around the box to so you could actually see the cigars in the box, but it wasn't as fancy, right? Yeah. But it was truly a Davidoff second. And everybody I smoked it around was like, that smells really good. And I, I was like, well, it tastes really good. So that's the one I went out and bought a full box of. The cigar that really kind of nailed me, though, was uh, Henry Clay. Really? Because Henry Clay, I was looking for something a little bit, you know, richer, a little bit fuller. And I saw this really ugly cigar in the box, you know, all crinkled and kind of like out of shape. They weren't round. They were, actually, I'll give you a great example of what Henry Clay used to look like. Uh, have you seen the Jason Newman cigar that's called Yawa? Yagua or Ya? I think that's yes. how you pronounce it. Yawa. I think so. It's kind of like shaped like a hexagon. <laughs> it's, it's it's got like weird cur, you know, weird edges. Henry Clay looked like that because the cigars went into the bundles very wet, and they oh. kind of smooshed together and got weird edges. So not not one cigar looked like another cigar in the box. 
It was that and a brand called Flamenco, which was the same cigar that Altadas made, or back then it was consolidated. They made that cigar, but discontinued Flamenco, and I actually bought one of the last boxes in the country of Flamenco. I still have some cigars from it back in the uh, early 90s. Um, those cigars, to me, were they were fun. You could chew on them. You could drop it on the ground, pick it back up, and it, it didn't break. Um, yeah, it, it was just something odd and special, and I thought the beauty was in its imperfections. And I, I loved it. And that's kind of like the, the one cigar that I really kind of turned everybody on to. Like anybody who came into Gus's smoke shop, which was my first job, they're like, uh, what, do you, what can you recommend? I'm like, you got to try this. They're like, it's a dollar or a dollar 15. I go, just you, you have to try it. And people yeah. would try it. And I still, I still have friends that have, are still smoking them to this day just because they need to have like some around because it's nostalgic for them. I love it. Let's talk about the, the monster series real quick, uh, or as you call it, sure. your nightmare. Um, can you tell our <laughs> listeners about the series? Uh, will there, the monsters be a regular annual release or, I mean, I noticed that every year you're coming out with the skinnies and you come out with a different one, but the monsters seem to be an annual thing so far. Yeah, the, so the Monsters have, were always an annual thing since 2008, starting with the Frank. And eventually we went through all the Monsters that I wanted to do, and then I did an interim Monster, which was Karloff. And then the whole goal was to start back to one again. So every year we're just going to come back out with the same portfolio just as a Redux. Yeah. So we did Frank Redux, we did Drac Redux, this year will be the face redux. Cool. Um, we still, the the monster blends that we do in the skinny monsters and the Casadori collection, the Lancero collection, those are kind of a every year production. So people can try those blends in those smaller uh, ring gauges. They're an every year production, but they're also very limited. And we make them usually like once a year like 500 boxes of the samplers. Um, the, the skinny monsters in the, you know, those nice little colorful jar type of boxes, those, those we make, actually we're looking at inventory today, we make about 400 boxes of each size a year. So not a lot, that's 10,000 cigars. Yeah. It's, it's not a lot of cigars. It's pretty limited, yeah. Um, so we, but we try to keep it, that way because we want to we want to make sure that the people that really want them always have them but uh, it's I think it's a good number and it keeps it it keeps it available but not not too available I guess <laughs> for lack of better words controlled be, controlled distribution will there be any new monsters introduced in the series or are you, are you is your lineup pretty set I did a creature in the in the uh, Belonk or the Britannica size. I don't know if I'll come out with a full-size creature yet. I don't think I'm going to introduce too many extra monsters. Um, yeah, I think I think we're good with. I mean, it's 13 monsters. It's it's uh, that yeah. was the whole original plan. 13 monsters. Yep. And 
13 monsters by the time we get back to redoing it again it will be 13 years for someone to get a frank again i think that's a i think that's a good wait <laughs> It's pretty cool. I yeah. think by that time it'll be in demand again. Did you have any issues with so, any other companies or industries uh, when you released the monsters, you know, using the monsters' names or even using the word monster? No, well, okay. So using the monsters' name, I've never actually used the the name, the full name. It's always been the Drac, the Frank, the Face, the Mummy. Well, the Mummy's, you know, public domain pretty much. Um, but I've always been very careful to make sure that I don't overstep any boundaries. Yeah. Um, the only time I ever really had a problem was with Monster Energy because uh, they like to pick on anybody that uses the word monster. But they, I own the trademark in the cigar industry, so they couldn't do. They ultimately couldn't do anything, and all they could do is try to try to mess with me and and hurt my bank account because all they're doing is making me pay legal bills yeah. but you know sometimes you have to stick to your guns and just say you know go away it's like a, it's a bully that's what that's what essentially they are they're a, they're a big bully that that likes to hurt small businesses and uh, I know for a fact that multiple judges have thrown cases that they've brought up out of court because they were just frivolous and the greatest thing about having the trademark is they, they knew they couldn't do anything with the name. Yeah. So they tried to come after me for colors. <laughs> like, they told me they didn't like me using uh, vibrant green. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Putting so it, in it the, was more of a pain in the ass than anything. Putting it in uh, music terms, correlating cigar and album releases uh, and using yeah. uh, Metallica as an example. What cigar release okay. of yours would be considered your black album, and what cigar release of yours would be considered your load album? Wow, uh, that's a tough one. I mean, I think I think the black album's got to be probably the original brown label. Yeah. And the other album, I'm sorry, was. Which album? The shitty one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The one that they had to do twice? The one they yeah, had to reload? I, yeah. Um, I, uh, I don't... I, I would never compare anything to that album because... <laughs> Good answer. If I, don't like, if I don't like something, we just don't make it. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, I, there's not always there's not always a cigar that everybody loves, right? Um, but there are people uh, that do enjoy it, and they get disappointed when we tell them we're discontinuing them. Um, so if you had to if you had to look at it that way of of okay, people not everybody enjoyed it. For the, that's the best way to put it. If someone not everybody enjoyed it, I would say maybe the original Triumphador. Uh, which was not the not the brown label one, but the original red label one. Okay. Not everybody enjoyed it because they thought it was too light. They thought it was too easy. Um, it didn't have enough punch, and they didn't think that. I always loved this. They're like, it's not a tatuaje. I'm like, it's not supposed to be a tatuaje. Not every cigar is supposed to be a tatuaje. Tatuaje is its own thing, and 
Triumphador is its own thing, and How I Want is its own thing, and Larry K is its own thing. So I would say that. that I, was think you did, I think that described the, the Load album, the right? Disappointments. The Load album was too light, didn't have enough punch, people didn't like I mean, I think that was that's a perfect, <laughs> perfect uh, uh, comparison. Uh, can you tell everybody about the Saints and Sinners Club? Uh, what is it? Uh, how did it start? And, and what is your vision uh, for that club? Well, it, we'll start off. It's definitely not a cult. So we'll start there. We'll go back to that again. I said club. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know you did. Um, I'm just going back in time a little bit. Saints and Sinners started as as a, a community. And it's like re really a a a social club. It was supposed to be a social club for cigar smokers. And it was never supposed to be about, you know, only Tatawahi. It's a, a social club for people who enjoy cigars. It's supposed to be, we never censored the, the forums. It was, you could talk about whatever you wanted to talk about, just be nice to each other. That's the yeah. whole key is like, we, we end up ultimately, we had a lot of trolls on our forum. And the trolls would beat people up like constantly. And our biggest rule was like, we're not going to censor anything, but be kind to your neighbor. And if someone smokes a cigar you don't like, who gives a shit, right? Right. But uh, it was never supposed to be a Tatawai fan club. Someone said, uh, oh, it's kind of like the Kiss Army. I go, well, kind of, but, you know, the Kiss Army was really directive about, about you know, only listening to Kiss. Uh, this is this is a, a club and a forum for people that enjoy cigars. And the fact that you took a chance on us, we welcome you. And it's supposed to be a community and a family. And ultimately, it turned into a charitable organization where we it's not registered as a charitable organization, but we, we do donate a lot of the proceeds every year to two different causes that we believe in whether it be to uh, dog rescues or to a cancer foundation. Yeah. We used to donate to one of uh, Casper's uh, groups that he used to uh, be a tour manager for. Uh, Andrew from Jack's Mannequin uh, oh. had uh, some type of cancer. I forgot what it was. Um, so we'd always donate to his uh, big golf tournament every year that he was doing or his big charity that he did. And then... And then over the last multiple years, we, we actually cut a check to the CRA for $30,000 every year from the club just to protect all of our rights to smoke cigars. So that's really, that was really the one that became more important for us when the, when the uh, FDA came involved and the CRA was scrambling to raise money from the industry to help you know, fight our battles. I told Casper and our other business partner in there because Casper is actually one of my business partners in Saints and Sinners and our buddy Ali. Um, I told him, I said, listen, it's important for me that, that you know, the CRA gets our members involved. I mean, our, that, that the Saints and Sinners gets our members involved by making, you know, them pitch in also. So what happens is we ask the club members to, to contribute, well, not contribute, but to pay a little bit more for the club kit every year. In turn, we give them back two special cigars that are only made 
for the Saints and Sinners members labeled with CRA bands. This is not something the CRA pays for. We do it all on our end. Wow. But we give them back the the product for what they what they paid for, and then we donate X amount of dollars per member, and usually it's it's around thirty thousand dollars. I think there was a couple of years we did a little bit more, but then on top of it, I I pitch in another forty plus to the CRA every year because I believe in the cause and I believe in protecting our freedoms when it comes to what we make and what we produce and what everybody gets to enjoy to smoke. Because if you go back to the CRA um, and the FDA beginnings, the FDA was trying to uh, convince everybody that a, a $10 cigar should be the minimum price point. And I was like, get the fuck out of here. Like, a $2 cigar for a guy who drives a tractor every day, that's his super premium. How do you tell him that he's not worthy to buy something that he enjoys? That's his premium. Because he'll walk into a store and look at the $10 cigar and say, I don't need that shit. I, I, I love my $2 cigar. And now the FDA is going to tell you that it has to be $10? No, no fucking way. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a... Something I'm angry about. Like, no, kind of so. overly talkative about sometimes. Um, and I'm glad that the CRA was able to uh, win a few battles for the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Because it was really the work from the CRA and a few companies that, that contributed a lot of money and a lot of time to, uh, to the organization that helped all of us, all the brand owners, Every brand owner uh, that's in this industry, every retailer and every consumer not have to pay exorbitant prices to enjoy a, a handmade product. Yeah, absolutely. An altered handmade product. And I, I can speak for all of us when I say thank you for, for those efforts. Um, out of your line, what is your yeah. personal go-to favorite child and why? I always have to say the Havana Cazadori and the original brown label. Um, the main, the name, okay, so the size means something to me because the Romeo Cazadori was actually one of my favorite cigars when I was younger. Six and three-eighths by 43. Every time I would buy a box of Romeo Cazadores, I would peel open the foil paper stick my nose in the foil paper and it's like a chocolate factory baking inside the foil so when I started the line the first thing I did is I'm going to mimic that style I want to open up my box my foil stick my nose in it and smell that chocolate factory and the name means Havana Havana's Hunter so okay. Havana Cazadori, so Havana Hunt, uh, it, it's so, I had two dogs at the time, Havana and Cuba. I'm sorry, Havana and Hunter. And um, Hunter had passed away before I started the brand. That was really kind of where the Hunter series comes from. Um, so I kind of filled in the, the gap with the Havana Cazadori to call it, you know, to put both names on there. Yeah. And, uh, 
Yeah, that's the one. That's the Desert Island cigar for me. That's the one I'm going to take with me every time. Because I know I can get every bit of flavor that I need out of that cigar. And to me, it still tastes the same. And your, your, your wife being a cigar smoker, does she have a favorite yeah. smoke from Tatuaje? Yeah, she was a La fan. Okay. That's Ultimately, that's why I made the La Duena line. Because she was... She would smoke here and there, and she would be on the road smoking La Riquezas at events with a lot of the events that we were at together. And I was like, I'm going to make her a cigar. And it, it became one of these things where I was going to the factory for about a year making samples of basically the same blend every time because I was really testing to make sure because I used a lot of thinner ring gauges and I wanted to make sure that the rollers were rolling them properly because the blend is kind of complex and it has a lot of broadleaf in it so what we were worried about what I was worried about is that because of the thickness of the leaves that they were using whether or not they would have issues drawing so for about a year, I was going down there, and I walked into uh, my brother-in-law's office, and he goes, what are those cigars right there? And I go, they're La Duena samples. And he goes, nah, no more samples. You, you need to make you need to make the line and order the order the sizes for the show. I said, it's not my line. It's your, it's your line, so you got to make your own order. And uh, it, became, it became her thing because, you know, Pepin had a line, Jaime had a line. But Yanni was the one on the road all the time. So I said, you should have your own thing. Yeah. That way, when people talk to you, you're talking about your product and not just, you know, your family's product. Yep. And it became like a kind of a, a small, you know, following to it. It's not it's not crazy big sales, but they continue to make it because, you know, it's part of, you know, the family. And... Uh, I think if they looked at the true numbers of that line based on their scale of company, they'd probably get rid of it because it's it's not a big seller. But at the same time, there are a core group of people that really enjoy it. And if you're if you're not smoking your own line, is there anything that made by somebody else that you grab out of your out of your humidor? And uh, why is that? Yeah, I mean. Listen, I, I always used to say, like, I do like some other brands outside of the factory. But over the years, like, people ask me all the time, like, have you smoked anything new? I'm like, I've smoked a bunch of, you know, like, custom Cubans. But I'm always smoking Cuban cigars because I want to, just want to see how they're progressing and if they're truly catching up to everybody else. Because yeah. I think they're behind everybody. There was a time where Cuba, when it came to quality and consistency and flavor, they were way ahead of everybody, in my opinion. But there was a there was a time where it, it crossed and they, they went backwards even further. So there were there was a brief time where, like years ago, like I would pick up maybe an Illusione uh, that Dion was making, or maybe an Opus X or a Padron or something like that. But the last multiple years, it's been hard for me to smoke anything but our product because we're constantly working on new projects. 
and I want to be on top of the flavor profiles constantly to make sure that the cigars are good. So I, not only do I smoke a lot of our stuff, but I smoke a lot of the Garcia's product because I want to, I just want to be a, a voice of reason if I find something wrong with one of their cigars. And it could be a blend that that's one of their most historic blends that maybe just had a bad batch. So I, I always, I'm always chiming in just to make, you know, make sure that they don't get caught um, with, uh, you know, people saying, oh man, the cigars are, are bad or they're, or they're, uh, they've changed. I want to make sure that uh, the family is strong together. And, you know, so I always say like, hey, what do you, what do you smoke out, you know, outside your brand? I, so I, I smoke uh, Pepin, I smoke Jaime, I smoke, <laughs> I smoke Flor de las Antillas a lot. Um, Maybe I'll smoke a Las Calaveras. Uh, maybe I'll smoke a La Roma Mi Amor. So it's it's always things within the factory. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any recent uh, or current releases that the folks out there should know about and should go out and find right now? Uh, current releases right now, um, we are shipping. Actually, the, I think they're all shipped. The retailers should have them. The PCA... 2022 and the TAA 2022, which we delayed not because the cigars weren't ready. We delayed because we weren't ready. Uh, we had so much going on in 2022 that I, we, we just talked with, within the group and we said, let, let's just push them to next year. It made more sense not to, not to rush them. The cigars got an extra few months of age uh, for us. You know, I think it made uh, the guy and our main guy in the office, Andy, I think it made him happy that he wouldn't have to stress during the end of the year to try to get all these boxes out. So we just said, you know, screw it. We can wait until January. And shit, it worked out great because um, all the cigars are out the door. Every yeah. retailer should have them by now. And uh, yeah, we're, we're happy that uh, that they're out on the streets, but because they're they're good. I got a nice text message from a, a dear friend in the industry that I've known for probably 20 plus years, actually longer, uh, saying you did it again. The, uh, it was a picture of the TA cigar. No, sorry, the PCA cigar. Um, just lit up the, the Fausto. <clears throat> Complete opposite of uh, oh, okay. what we just had. <laughs> but may I say. Which, yeah. uh, is that the 140 or... Yes, I believe so. It's either the 140 or the the 150. No, it's the 140. Maybe the yeah. 127. Still great, uh, but completely yeah, opposite. Big, Much bold, more pep bold, peppery flavors. Big, bold, uh, yeah, a little bit uh, over the top. I mean, that's yeah. that's all high priming tobacco. That's this high visos a, and lajeros. So you're gonna get a big punch. Yeah, this is the this is definitely the whiskey. That's a cigar. whiskey cigar. <laughs> uh, our our mutual friend Beans uh, mentioned to me that there's a an event in Chicago uh, coming up in February. Can you tell us about that event? What was that? Uh, Beans mentioned that there is an I event. Miss, in I miss what it was. Uh, the event in Chicago that's coming up in February. Ah, Mardi Gras. 
Yeah, the Mardi Gras. That's Uptown up down, uh, Tobacco in, or Uptown Cigar or Uptown Tobacco on Well Street in Chicago. Um, we've been doing this Mardi Gras thing for years. Obviously, the pandemic killed it for a few years. Um, but, uh, yeah, shit, I think, I think we, you know, since Casey and Dan started doing it, it might be close to... Might be close to. We started maybe eight years ago, maybe I can't remember, but it was Diana. The first one I attended, Diana was still around. Diana was still alive, so shit, it might be even longer. Um, I would love to find out actually, because I think it might be longer. It might be ten years, but uh, it's a wow. fun event. Uh, the guys at Uptown support the brand heavily. It's all based around uh, Fat Tuesday. It's on Tuesday, actually. It's on Fat Tuesday. Um, I'm literally flying in for the event and flying out the next morning. Okay. So maybe party to the plane. <laughs> uh, so I understand in 2012, you started uh, working with a winery. At that time, you mentioned that maybe in 10 years, you might see a debut of a Tatuaje wine. Here we are 10 years later. Can you talk about that wine product, where it is now and where it's currently going? Yeah, I, I did five vintages. For, so my first vintage actually was 2010. I made it in, in Bordeaux, France. Um, all the, all the uh, grapes came from saint Emilion, which is uh, the right bank. Uh, at one time, I actually had a Santa Million designation, so an AOC Santa Million, because everything was done, all the grapes were from Santa Million, and all the processing and bottling was done in Santa Million. Unfortunately, for my AOC uh, designation, once they started taking all the, the juice and bringing it across the river to the left bank, my my designation became just AOC Bordeaux um, because you can't you can't move the juice around and call it one region if it's not a hundred percent from that region. Yeah, a very strict wine, very strict labeling laws with wine. Like I have a saying um, on my arm, tattooed on my arm, and it says "Bouvet du Vin, Vivez Joyeux." which means uh, drink wine and enjoy life and or live life joyously. And they came back to me and says, we can't put the part about drink wine on the bottle. I go, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like, that's what you're doing with the bottle. You're drinking the wine. They're like, no, you, you can't, you can't actually promote the drinking of wine. So if you look at the, all the corks, it's my label, my logo, and it just says "Vive Joyeux," live life joyously. Okay. Um, the name of that, the name of the company. Like, if I, I were to go say, look, if I were to look for the wine, it, what's the name of the wine? Is it Tatuaje wine, or what's the name of the company? No, it's called Tatuaje. But I only okay. did five vintages, so 2010 to 2014. I did five vintages, and I decided that that was enough. Like, I stopped. Uh, I stopped going to Bordeaux and I stopped uh, making more wine. It it became it was a it was a basically a giant vanity project, and it was a way for me to test my skills blending stuff 
in a different realm. And I always wanted to do it. So we talked about the journey earlier on of how like, hey, shit, I'll, I'll carry bags. I'll teach me how yeah. to, you know, set up mic stands on a stage. I mean, obviously I know how to do that, but, but like, I'll do whatever you want on this tour with the Jonas Brothers, but the wine, uh, like, that was a big part of my journey, like just testing myself, really proving to myself that I could do something different. Yeah. Um, so everything that, that I've done over the years of having the luxury to be able to do those things from the cigar industry has really been a test just to see if I can do things. And, uh, and again, to make myself feel good. Because it's it, that's essentially what you know that shit is. It's a vanity project. You feel great about it. You feel good about yourself when you do it. Um, but I think I made a pretty good wine, and uh, I didn't do all the work. I did, I made the wine very similar to the way I do cigars. Like I go into a room and I play mad scientist, <laughs> and then I let the people that actually know what the fuck they're doing do the work. Yeah. Have you experienced? Uh, experience I, I, mean, I live. So I was going to have you ex experimented with aging tobacco in those wine barrels? Not in wine barrels, but in uh, bourbon barrels. Okay. So uh, years and years ago, I think this goes back to uh, 2017, maybe. Someone's going to correct me, but. Uh, we, we did a, uh, a barrel of Willet. Oh, cool. Uh, you know, Willet whiskey? Yeah, yeah. We did a barrel with Willet. We, we, went on, we went on a tour with Drew Coltsveen, the, uh, the son and master distiller of the family. We mm -hmm. went on a tour with him, and he took us around, and we tapped a bunch of barrels. And we, uh, we found a particular barrel that we, we fell in love with. And once the barrel is, you know, emptied out, he he kind of gives the you know the end the end person the barrel and i yeah. asked him i said can i get three more barrels cuz i want to i want to play around with some things but ultimately i only use one barrel to test uh aging tobacco and barrels and you get a really unique character to it um you know the fda kind of scared me away from really doing it so we never really full, went full board with it but i I did a couple of releases where the tobacco, um, the filler tobacco was aged in the barrel and I kept cool. the, the binders and the wrapper neutral Yeah. Um, just because I didn't want it to be overpowered by the flavor, but it does add like a unique, almost like a banana note to, to things. It's weird. Hmm. But I, like, I remember popping the barrel open the first time because it's fairly easy to open up a barrel you got to take the rings off and then peel the, the staves yeah. and then pop out the top and then you put the staves back together and then put the rings back on. Right. And then the top becomes just a lid. You, you set on top and we put a handle on it and we, we actually, um, put, uh, like something underneath to lock in the kind of like make a vapor seal to it. But as soon as we open it up, I stuck my head in the barrel and I almost passed out. It's like <laughs> super strong. And you got to be careful. And it actually all started because the guys from Uptown, we go back to Uptown, the, the Mardi Gras event. 
they were buying they weren't buying they were getting barrels from goose island yeah and they were taking some of our cigars and and aging them in barrels that were amazing so i started sending them cigars and say hey do me a favor put these in the barrels for a while i want to taste them and that's really where the, the experimental part came but we tried it on a couple a couple projects and then ultimately we never we never did anything with it um it's fun but you know if you you know that this industry is kind of you know the land of of romance bullshit right <laughs> there's a lot of shit in our industry where people make up great stories about things but you know when you see barrels in factories that have been aging tobacco in these barrels a lot of those a lot of times those barrels are completely spent there's no no aroma no anything left to them it's just it's good marketing yeah. In the sense of what we were doing, there was these barrels were still very alive. They still had, you know, a, a lot of strength to them. You know, when you repurpose a barrel over and over and over again after it's been opened, it's going to eventually bleed out completely, and it's not going to accent much of anything. It's really more of a marketing tool. Yeah. Um, we never got to the whole point where it was like the barrels were spent. <laughs> We used it for a couple times, had fun with it, and then we we finished the uh, the, the vanity project. <laughs> <laughs> One last question: uh, I understand Tatuaje is actually turning yeah. twenty years old this year. Um, did you imagine the opportunities yep. and success that <laughs> that you now have, and and when you started, and, and where do you would you like to see Tatuaje the next ten years? So when when you guys turn thirty. Uh, I mean, I'll say that I'm, I'm happy that we got to 20. We never went into it thinking we were going to, let's get to 20 years. Um, yeah. When we got to 10, that was a big deal. That was super exciting. We celebrated. We had a, you know, a nice party. We, I started doing these vanity projects, <laughs> like the wine, and then also uh, going on tour with the Jonas Brothers. Um I started doing things for myself a little bit more because I, I really, the first 10 years, I, I busted my ass traveling constantly. I started slowing down a little bit on travel in the last 10 years, but I was still out there so much that the airlines liked me. Um, I would say I hope to get to 30, and I hope I don't disappoint people. Um, yeah. To me, it, it really means a lot when people enjoy the product, but it hurts the most when they don't enjoy it. So I'm hoping I don't disappoint anybody, and I'm hoping that uh, we make it to 30 without too many hiccups. And I think we're on a good pace to make it to 30 uh, without too many problems because the Garcias have uh, a giant stockpile of tobacco we, they have a great infrastructure. We have access to all of that um, because of the relationship. And again, I just want to make good shit and, uh, well, yeah. and, and not disappoint people's palates. And I, when would I, say, do that, I would say from my, my perspective, I would say from my perspective, from the window I look out of, if you keep doing what you're doing, and uh, the, the relationship that and the the, the Pepins and the Garcia, like 
that is a, a formula for success, and I, I feel like I don't think uh, I see any type of disappointment <laughs> coming from from you and your team. Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't plan on it. Like, you know, my plan is to not suck. You yeah, know? and not not make a load album. <laughs> uh, <laughs> on that note, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, th it looks like our time is running out. Uh, I could sit here and just burn uh, cigars all night with you, but uh, this episode seems like it's coming down to a nub. Pete, thanks again for joining. Uh, I lost I you. <laughs> yeah, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time. Um, this was educational, and I appreciate it. Folks, don't forget to like, no. share, subscribe, all that stuff. Uh, you know, I'm not big into social media, but whatever bells and whistles and thumbs that you need to press, please do all of that. Uh, Pete, thanks. Uh, this is huge. Everyone, don't forget to uh, stay safe, stay smoky. Man, I, I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, no, this is great. And uh, I'm going to try to get out to Uptown and, and meet you in person. If not, I'm sure it'll happen sometime soon. Um, but, yeah, thanks again. Very cool. Uh, folks, uh, see you next time here at the Cigar Social Podcast. Mm -hmm.